In just one generation, the internet connected people across the globe. And now, slow news days are a thing of the past. It's a lot to keep track of, but WHIP has you covered with local, national, and international stories. Join us for a rational look at a complex world. This is Rational Radio on WHIP. Indeed, this is Rational Radio on WHIP. I'm Tony Pearson, host today, joined with my co-host, Julius Toth, and a special guest. It's going to... Introduce you right out of the gate. <laughs> we got Frank Travone in today. He is an attorney from, well, a former attorney. attorney. I guess, I, say, I guess you're once always, always, once an attorney, always an attorney. Well, um, you pay your, for your license. That's, they, they charge you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Especially with the amount of schooling y'all go, uh, go through for that. Um, and he's from, he's the executive director at the Child Advocates, which is a pro bono lawyer program for um, abused and neglected children in Philadelphia. And today we're here to talk about, well, we're here to talk about a couple of things. The school to prison pri- pipeline, which is a topic that we've covered on this show a few times in the past. Also a grant involving the Institute on Disabilities at Temple University um, and funded by the Pennsylvania Developmental Disabilities Council to develop a model to address this issue. So, first of all, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. Um, so, for folks who haven't heard some of our previous uh, coverage on this, can you tell us a bit about what the school-to-prison pipeline is? Yeah, so the pipeline is a, a kind of set of experiences that young people go through in which they are, for one reason or other that we'll, we can discuss, they're pushed out of school, either for school discipline reasons or uh, the school couldn't keep up with parents moving, sometimes for custody reasons. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, a kid is acting out because of something that's happening at home, an abusive situation, for example. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they're out of school, and now uh, they're having trouble getting back in. On the way to getting back in, they get into trouble, mm-hmm. right? We uh, often talk about the the idle hands problem, the, the, the kid who uh, is not in school but needs to be in school. They're age appropriate. They, they have all sorts of education needs, issues, perhaps deficits, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, isn't allowed to attend. They're on suspension. They're on expulsion. They're waiting for enrollment, and their records haven't caught up with them. Mm-hmm. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're either sleeping mm-hmm. or they're getting in trouble. And the ones that are getting in trouble are then into the pipeline. So I would they imagine in, in a lot of these situations when children are out of school, oftentimes like the idea is that, you know, the, the, the parents might be able to discuss like, oh, why you're not in school or something like that. But I imagine a lot of folks like their parents work during the day. Yeah, or, we're not talking about six or seven-year-olds uh, uh, who somebody's going to watch and be with all the time. Mm-hmm. Right? We're talking about 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. They don't want to be watched. Mm-hmm. As you said, their parents are are, are probably at work, um, maybe absent, mm-hmm. right? Lots of kids are living in single-parent households, and that single parent is out in one or two jobs, mm-hmm. and they're, in a sense, holding on for dear life to keep their family together. Mm-hmm. So... They're, in a sense, trusting the youth to stay out of trouble. And 
you know, that's a mixed bag, right? Kids are going to get in trouble, you know, by their own devices. And, and sometimes, in a sense, for, for, for all sorts of reasons that, that are themselves pretty messed up, you know. There's a lot of stuff battling for their attention at any given moment. Yeah, there, there's that. There's all of the peer pressure stuff. There's, you know, mistaken arrest, mm-hmm. right? Kids walking down the street, gets pulled over by a cop because something happened in the next block. And next thing you know, the kid's, you know, in handcuffs in a police car and a family can't make bail or... Uh, you know, it's several days before that kid uh, is released from uh, detention. And in the meantime, uh, you know, he, he may have met some, some characters that he wouldn't have otherwise met. It's unnecessary contact with the judicial system. Yeah. Which... So the pipeline is really a slippery slope, mm-hmm. right? And once the kid gets on that slope, it's hard to kind of arrest the slide. Um, so what we see is... This is happening nationally. It's it's not just in big cities. It's uh, not just with minority youth, though. Uh, we think at a higher incidence in minor in 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 big cities and with minority youth, mm-hmm. um, that policies and practices are pushing kids out of school and into the juvenile or criminal justice system, mm-hmm. school to prison. Um, That's where the name comes from. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Do, so just out of curiosity, are there, I'm not sure even how easy it would be to, to get number numbers like these, but are there any numbers um, about frequency of people who are suspended or, or in another capacity taken out of school due to some punitive measure and then end up in contact with the judicial system? It's hard to get those numbers from our school systems. They don't report that way. Mm-hmm. Um uh, we know that uh, uh, we should mention as well, in addition to kids involved with the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. that is uh, charged with a crime or a delinquent act, uh, there is, in a sense, in this set of young people, kids who are removed from their families because of something that happened to them, not because of something they allegedly did, but because of something that happened to them. We call that the child welfare system, abuse mm-hmm. and neglect cases. Right. So that that youth as well can be pushed out of school. As I said earlier, that kid may be acting out because of some trauma that happened in his life. He's very upset at what he saw last night. He picks a fight with somebody. He goes off on a teacher. He's uh, feel, you know, comes off as depressive or, or or not responsive, gets kicked out of the classroom. You know, now he's really ticked off. Mm-hmm. Maybe he gives the finger to somebody and then they send him home. Mm-hmm. Now he's out on the street, and doesn't, right? doesn't sound doesn't sound constructive. Yeah, um, so so both of those types of kids mm-hmm. are vulnerable. There are six thousand kids in foster care in Philadelphia. Wow. Today, there are another you know in the area of three or four thousand youth involved with the juvenile justice system in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, so and in the population that, that, that really is most susceptible to this phenomenon, we're talking, you know, teenagers, mm-hmm. at, you know, older adolescent, the 10, 11, 12 year old, you know, up through 21, mm-hmm. um, uh, that may be as many as half of that 10,000 or so young people were subject to court jurisdiction. So we're talking, you know, 5,000 or so kids uh, for whom this is, uh, in a sense, a risk. And that's that's just in Philly. That's just in Philly. Wow. So I'm curious, because this, 
the, the problem that we're talking about here sounds, as we were talking a little bit before we came on air, um, it sounds like an institutional one, um, like something that's sort of maybe not intentionally, but baked into the the system, so to speak, in that um, when folks get suspended or something or something like that, any anything that gets them out of school, um, there aren't necessarily constructive ways for bringing them back in. That's right. When is, is there any point in our history? Because I know our our schooling system hasn't always looked the way it does right now. Uh, when this problem began to become as serious and widespread as it is right now? You know, it's hard to say that, uh, in, a, in a sense, when it began, uh, I'm a lot older than you guys and, <laughs> you know, kind of grew up in the in the 60s and 70s. And, um, you know, there were always kids thrown out of school. Mm-hmm. The family structure... Uh, was not as kind of dispersed, in a sense, fragmented as we see it in many families uh, today. But um, e- even at the end, and, and, and the kid who, in a sense, violated the law, might have gotten picked up by the cops, didn't get brought to detention, got brought home. The mm-hmm. police officer drove the boy home. Now he had to face his parents because the cops said, you know, I found Joey shoplifting. Mm-hmm. Up at the mall, right? more more than a couple stories like that, <laughs> no, right? With people, like you know, that. I mean, you know, race comes into the picture mm-hmm. of these days. We know uh, in the in in the current day that uh, minority youth are approached differently mm-hmm. by law enforcement and by other systems. It can be it's the a, difference between just being taken home and getting booked. That's correct, yeah. uh, and that's a phenomenon that has been well documented across the country. Um, and uh, is another, in a sense, feeder to the pipeline that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so we kind of we kind of did talk about this. So this this seems to be an area that largely does affect um, more more urban areas. But I, how much of this? How much is this an issue in more rural areas as well? I know that. Yeah. So the push out phenomenon. Remember, the start of this is that the kid is pushed out of their home school, place Mm -hmm. where they're supposed to be going to school for a variety of reasons. There's the juvenile justice uh, uh, dimension. There's the child protection uh, uh, dimension. There's behavioral issues Mm -hmm. uh, that cause a child to be placed in residential treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, that kid isn't exactly out of school at the beginning. Kid is is removed, for example, because of some behavioral uh, issue and needs to go to a residential program. Often these these programs are kind of far away uh, from their from their home. Mm-hmm. You know, twenty miles, two hundred miles, right? And they get transported to that place. There may be a so-called on-ground school, mm-hmm. or there may they may get enrolled in the school in the location of the institution. Mm-hmm. On the way back, they have trouble getting into school. So, so it's the reentry problem that is another part of the pipeline. So that's what that's okay. actually what I was going to ask about next, which is, so it sounds like one of the, the bigger, well, there are a lot of issues with this, but it sounds like one of the big ones is, is that getting back in process. So what are some of the institutional or otherwise barriers that exist 
to re-entry or even like effective re-entry into yeah. the school system. Yeah. So um, it's about paperwork. It's <laughs> about, uh, you know, something as simple as immunization records, just really mundane stuff. Mm -hmm. School districts, so the kid's coming from an institution, you know, say in Western Pennsylvania, and the court discharges them, or the physicians out there, the mental health staff discharges them. He's sent back. Everybody wants that to happen, so they don't slow that down. Mm -hmm. They say, okay, let's, let's get him back. And he's put on a bus, or his parent goes out and gets him, or some social worker transports. And he's back at home, and you know, you would think that the next morning he's going to show up at his local high school, right? Comes mm -hmm. back on a Wednesday, tomorrow morning, he's back at school. Except he goes over to school, and they say, oh, no, we don't have any record of you coming here. Or, uh, oh, we heard you were coming, but we need your immunization records. Oh, your school credits didn't transfer. We don't know what grade to put you in. So this is actually, so this is actually like an institutional problem where they don't it's have a, kind of, a... It's this kind of massive bureaucracy that yeah. lays waste on top on the shoulders of this kid. See, that's that's surprising. I had honestly thought that a large portion of it would just be getting people who have been taken out of the of the process just to consistently of their own volition want to return. But it sounds more like this is an issue where regardless of their desire to return to the schooling system, just the the bureaucratic gridlock can get in the way that's right more than anything. Wow. Right. So it's a set of barriers and that's what we'll talk more uh, about our project. But we mm -hmm. you know what we've identified um, is a, a set of barriers to re-enrollment and to enrollment in the right program. <clears throat> mm -hmm. But we would like to think that, that every child's supposed to be in school, every child's supposed to be in the right school, mm -hmm. and every child's supposed to be on the way to finishing school. And each of those has you know important dimensions. The kid has to be in school, there has to be an enrollment to happen. Mm -hmm. In order for enrollment to happen, there has to be ducks in a row in terms of paperwork, in terms of uh, uh, you being in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, The right school is about programming, that you're in a program that's appropriate to your needs. Think of the, the youth with an individual education program, an IEP mm -hmm. for special education. Well, that IEP is supposed to define the, the, the when and where of his school program. Oh, uh, the IEP didn't get here from your institution. Uh, you're gonna have to sit in the principal's office. Um, now, well, I think perhaps by Monday, why don't you go home and come back on Monday and we'll see if the school program can start. And that's just more time. Yeah. All right. Well, we do have to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about the issue itself. And we're also going to get into some ideas for addressing this issue and hopefully moving towards some actual research and evidence-based solutions. So I'm going to leave you all real quick with a news update, a little bit of music. We'll be back shortly. Thank you all for listening. This is Rational Radio on WHIP. We're Philly's number one college radio station. From WHIP News, I'm Brian Coughlin. Today is Wednesday, November 14th, and this is your WHIP News Update. On Thursday, November 8th, California saw a campfire go up in flames, serving as the most deadly wildfire in the state's history. As of today, CNN reported new casualty information. 48 had been reported dead, with evacuee rates also soaring. Fighters are still battling the disaster, and Paradise, a town in Northern California, is working to overcome its infrastructure being obliterated by the fires. Business Insider reports sparking power lines as the source of the destruction. 125,000 
acres of California territory has been affected by the fires thus far. Tech and e-commerce giant Amazon has recently unveiled the locations of its new HQ2 office expansions. After a long-fought battle between potential host cities, the firm has announced it will open two new locations in Long Island City, Queens, and Arlington, Virginia. Amazon faced backlash after it misled the public into believing a large second headquarters location rivaling the one in Seattle, Washington would bring economic prosperity to a potential host city. The revelation of two new facilities and thriving locations through many U.S. cities for a spin. The $5 billion project is on track to place 50,000 new jobs across the two locations. Time will tell whether the decision was beneficial for the growing tech firm. From WHIP News, I'm Brian Coughlin, and this has been your WHIP News Update. Welcome back to Rational Radio on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. And this is the show where we talk about, well, national news, world news, sometimes state and local news. But today we're talking about a subject that we've covered a couple times on this show and others on WHIP school to prison pipeline which is a phenomenon seen in schools here in philadelphia but also across the nation where situations in which i would say i, I almost feel like children children teens predominantly um young adults sometimes who come out of contact with the uh with the school system tend not to get back in, or if they can't get back in, oftentimes they find themselves in contact with the criminal justice and judicial system. Um, so on the, before the talk break, I should say, well, not before the talk break, before the commercial break, we discussed the actual nature and some of the, the origins of the issue. I want to talk a bit about oh, potential solutions and paths moving forward. Oh, oh, and I should also specify, I'm joined today by Frank Thervon, who works with the um, with the Child Advocates, a pro bono lawyer program for abused and neglected children in Philadelphia that works very closely um, with programs aimed at addressing this issue. Yeah, so we think that there needs to be a reentry protocol, a roadmap that everybody's aware of, that everybody uses, so that mm-hmm. we're not reinventing the practice for every kid, for every youth coming from every school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these there are thousands of young people who are placed outside their school of origin, their so-called home school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those, you know, it's this kind of river of young people coming back into a variety of schools. And, you know, if there were just one on one side and one on the other, you can imagine a workforce getting developed that that gets it, that understands, well, this is how it works, right? Mm-hmm. There's you know, like any school, there's a business office and they process the paperwork and then they send it over to here and it all gets processed in the right way. But mm-hmm. in point of fact, there are hundreds of, in a sense, feeder programs, these residential placements, schools uh, out in um, outside of the youth home school, sometimes outside of this region, occasionally outside of the state. And they're sending youth back to quite literally hundreds of different uh, schools and educational institutions uh, in in the region near the the the, the young person's home or, or or place of residence, a kid might be coming from a residential program to a foster home, mm-hmm. not to their birth family home. So they're actually going to a different school than they left. So they have a new home school. Mm-hmm. So the new school doesn't know anything about this kid. So now what do they do? They have to wait for a packet of material, quite literally paper. 
mm-hmm. some electronic stuff, but these days still mostly paper to be transmitted from that place where the kid was. And sometimes that place where the kid was hasn't even gotten it from the first place where the kid came from. So how long does that? Now we're two take? schools back, right? Yeah. And 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 it it you know it feels a little like the Pony Express and the horse is lame, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Okay. So how how long does this take? Yeah. So so this can take. It's supposed to take three days. Right. For some aspects of this. Right. For some aspects, it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be three days. For some aspects, the kid's supposed to be allowed to enroll immediately. Mm -hmm. Kid shows up. They have evidence that uh, he's in a caregiving situation. We're supposed to enroll him and figure it out later. So what's actually happening in in so many kids' lives is it's taking five days, 10 days, 20 days, on into months. And here we have, again, the problem of behavior catching up to the kid, the kid's own behavior, the kid's peer behavior, kid getting into trouble, right? Yeah. Now he's in prison, right? Then, now he's in juvenile. Now he's in trouble. And I imagine that once you get sucked up into the criminal justice system, that probably just introduces even more issues into getting back into the school system. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, so a lot of kids, I mean, they're not going off to jail. Most kids are going off... In fact, most kids that are involved with the juvenile justice system are going to stay at home mm-hmm. under some supervision by the court. Mm-hmm. But lots of kids, but even in that vein, they're held in detention for a little while. They're out of school because they had to go to court. Then they get they get dropped from the rolls. They get distracted by the whole experience. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of trauma that happens just by virtue of being involved with the system, mm-hmm. let alone whatever happened in, in, in that young person's life. I mean, doing well in school doing well in school, passing in school. It can be difficult to be out of something, even for something as simple as an illness, um, and miss a bunch of content for classes, stuff like that, and then get back in. Right. So what we see are a bunch of, in a sense, elements to this picture. And in our in our project, we've tried to kind of divide the uh, the roadmap into a, into a bunch of domains or elements. There's this uh, issue of enrollment that we discussed, that enrollment should be expeditious and appropriate to this kid's needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a record transfer because the youth, uh, it, w- records matter in, in education. Mm-hmm. Under state law, credits get counted, right? You have to have so many credits of English and, and so on, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's not... Uh, just kind of freelancing, kid steps into a new school and gets to pick what grade he's going to be in, mm-hmm. right? And gets to pick all of his classes and can take four gym classes, mm-hmm. right? We all know it doesn't happen that way, it's right? the term. We'd love it to happen that way, but it doesn't <laughs> totally. exactly, right? Then, you know, I mentioned credits. There has to be uh, some step about tr- credit transfer. Mm-hmm. The young person who's been at this other school presumably was attending school and earning credits, he might have been in that school for a year. Where are those credits? How many has he got? In what disciplines, subjects, were the credits earned? Sometimes that whole record gets lost. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the school where he has been sent is a so-called on-ground school at an institution, and the home school doesn't recognize the school program at the institution. And now he was just wasted his time being in a class that didn't earn any credits that were applicable in his home school. So these, so what? What are the like? What what level of standardization is there between 
these institutions, or is there not much? You know, virtually none for some of them. So there are programs that are overseen by the Pennsylvania Department of Education, Mm -hmm. the State Department of Education. Uh, There are programs that are not Mm -hmm. overseen by education. Uh, There are... um, the regulation of the private schools, the regulation of the various uh, institutions that are delivering treatment mm-hmm. and education uh, is itself a bit of a mishmash. Mm-hmm. It's another of the kind of root systemic problems that folks have been talking about and have really found frustrating for, for, for a decade or more. So if, if someone runs into trouble, for, for example, um, they have credits from one of these uh, multifaceted programs or something like that and yeah, try to return to yeah, yeah and try to return to a public school and that school for example does not accept um, their credits what what recourse do they have now we're in a mechanism called credit recovery it's a whole it's, process like of bureaucracy re- <laughs> yeah exactly retabulation where someone has to review the curriculum that you just went through and and see what credits might be awarded to that program mm-hmm Right. There's a catch-up process. Kid might have to go through some, in a sense, remedial education in order to get some of his credits back. Mm-hmm. Right. There are accelerated programs out there uh, to, to bring the kid, in a sense, back up to speed. We haven't talked about uh, behavioral health services, transportation, extracurricular involvement. These are all other components of many young people's mm-hmm high school education experience, for example, right? And that kid has a right to be involved. Mm -hmm. Kid wants to be in band. Kid wants to, you know, has a right to uh, a special education plan that's appropriate to his needs. Mm -hmm. And he's not getting them. What's happening? Is it just kind of neutral? Well, you know, they don't have white milk today. I guess I'll drink chocolate milk. It's just not so benign, Mm -hmm. right? It becomes really problematic to that kid's future that he does, he's not learning in the way he needs to. Mm-hmm. It's certainly from a legal perspective the way he has a right to. Mm-hmm. But that right is really just is grounded in what he needs. Mm-hmm. Right? And that kid needs to be in school, in a school that's appropriate to his needs. And, and many of these kids are being kept out of an appropriate education program because of what we've talked about, these bureaucratic delays. Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, so where... So the thing that makes addressing bureaucratic issues like these so difficult, I would imagine, is all the all the kind of red tape you have to go through to make any meaningful changes. What what avenues are there for addressing this problem realistically? Um, yeah. So, you know, things are happening both at the individual school level uh, and with individual youth mm-hmm. um, advocates like our office and others are engaging the systems on behalf of that young person. So, you know, we have a, uh, a relationship with a, with a youth as that child's lawyer, mm-hmm. and we're pressing his case. We're pressing it administratively. We're mm-hmm. talking to the school counselors in both institutions, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of the game. The kind of stuff that the, the, the child or teenager or young adult probably wouldn't be expected to do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. They're not going to take his call. He's yeah. not going to know who to call, mm-hmm. in a sense, or what to say, mm-hmm. right? So that's happening at the individual level. Uh, our project is one of a number of activities or initiatives that's happening at the systemic level mm-hmm. where, um, for example, we're trying to 
map the process of the way it it ought to be mm-hmm. so that we can have a conversation with leadership about the way it is mm-hmm. to put on paper and just be able to point out there's a gap here this isn't happening how can we fix that yeah to identify the um, the actual issues that could be fixed either with legislation with changes to some of these bureaucratic um, systems to I guess kind of plug the holes so yeah, so most of it's going to be, in a sense, administrative. That is, the policies of school districts, of individual um, um, uh, social service agencies, county uh, children and youth agencies, and mm-hmm. juvenile justice programs, court probation programs. Mm-hmm. These are the government entities that that we deal with, uh, both at the at the individual what we think of as case management level, that child by child by child and the systemic level as mm-hmm. well. So what kind of, speaking to Philly in particular, um, have you all seen any any success, any major, any major, I don't want to say concessions, because I don't feel there's anybody fighting to keep this system going the way it is, unless there are people fighting to. What is? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, look, I think, I think the school district of Philadelphia is working hard mm-hmm. to uh, remedy... Um, the case-by-case problems, mm-hmm. um, and 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 there are some programs. Uh, for example, there's a credit recovery program that is is pretty well respected, um, in a sense, to get the kid back on track. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the structural problems is that the school district of Philadelphia, neither the school district nor the city agencies, like the Philadelphia Department of Human Services, has any legal control over these schools in, uh, I- I- outside of our region. Mm-hmm. Um, that, those are uh, under the, the supervision and auspices of the state, of the Pennsylvania Department of Education. So we'd like to see, and Philadelphia leadership would like to see better programming in those places, but then that calls upon state government to go chase down those programs. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know they haven't done that nearly as effectively as we'd like them to. So, what do you think? What do you think is the the biggest barrier to getting these changes, if not made, addressed? Is it just that these issues often don't come up on the on the docket at the state level, or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some combination of lack of personal commitment on the part of leaders who uh, who are responsible for these young people. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what we call them to. We call them to name the kid and to name the problem, to put a face to each kid so that they're actually, when they say that you can't come back till Monday, that, that they're owning it, mm-hmm. that they're owning the difference. Um, uh, uh, a part of the uh, problem uh, is that there are so many of them, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it's easy for the school to say on Wednesday, come back on Monday because they just move on to the next kid. Mm-hmm. It's a lack of resources. Um, most public uh, educational institutions, high schools, middle schools, um, charter schools, uh, have very thin school counselor ranks mm-hmm. by virtue of poor funding. Mm-hmm. And it's the counselor that's going to sort this out. You know, it's not the teacher in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got her thing to do around the kids who, who made it into the room. Yeah. Right. It's somebody in the principal, vice principal, administration's office. 
Mm-hmm. And and those folks are really running thin these days. There's there's schools that have one counselor for several hundred kids. Yeah. You know, one of these problems could take five or six or ten hours to resolve. Yeah. And that's so, just it's just not tenable. We need a deeper bench. Indeed. It's certainly tenable if we were willing to pay for it. Yes. And on that topic, we we definitely have more to talk about about this, especially on the topic of um of funding and and just having the faculty to address some of these issues. But we do have to go to our second commercial breaks. So we'll be back after a quick sports update, a little bit of music, and then we'll be talking more school to prison pipeline on the other side of this break. Y'all listening to Rational Radio on WHIP. We're Philly's number one college radio station. It's half past the top of the hour, and here's your WHIP sports update. Hey, sports fans. I'm Brock Landis, and this is your sports update for Wednesday, November 14th, 2018. The Temple Owls concluded a two-game road trip with a 59-49 win over the Houston Cougars, ensuring bowl eligibility. There's a plethora of accomplishments for members of the Owls organization as Vental Bryant became Temple's all-time leading receiver. Similarly, Jeff Collins tied for the most wins by a Temple football coach through his first two seasons, and Paul Armstead's American Athletic Conference record-setting six touchdowns earned him Offensive Player of the Week honors. On an NFC Eastern Division clash last Sunday night, the reigning Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles were stunned by the Dallas Cowboys. Although the season is still young, a home loss against Dallas makes Philadelphia's trip to New Orleans must win. Despite a sluggish start, the Philadelphia 76ers have ascended to the third seed within the Eastern Conference, sporting nine wins and six losses. Joel Embiid scored 35 points and collected 18 rebounds in a road victory against the Miami Heat. This marks Embiid's ninth game scoring at least 30 points and grabbing at least 10 boards in his team's first 15 games joining elite companies such as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The Sixers parted ways with Robert Covington and Dario Sarge in an effort to obtain Jimmy Butler who figures to make his debut against the Magic tonight. Today's weather on Broad Street will be mostly sunny with a high of 40 and a low of 29 degrees. With reports at half past each hour, this has been Brock Lange reporting for WHIP Radio Phillies, number one college radio station. Welcome back to WHIP, specifically Rational Radio, Philly's number one college radio station. And this is the show where we talk about state, local politics, news, current events. Today, we're talking about the school-to-prison pipeline and, well, about why it's a thing, what kind of thing it is. And now we're going to talk a bit about the Child Advocates program, organization, call it, um, I'm here today with Frank Servone, who is the executive director at the Child Advocates. Yeah, so we're the volunteer lawyer program for abused children in Philadelphia. The Support Center for Child Advocates is the largest and oldest volunteer lawyer program for kids in the country. We were founded, incorporated in 1977. Oh, wow. uh, the story of our first case actually goes back to 1971, and it's it's an interesting little tale. Um, there was a... Um, a judge named Lois Forer, a uh, firebrand of a judge, uh, who sat in family court, and she heard of a case in her building before another judge uh, in which a child who had been abused was being sent back to his mom. Mm-hmm. She met a young lawyer on the street named Meg Greenfield. And Meg and a colleague lawyer named Jim Redeker were at the time chairing a little a committee of the Philadelphia Bar Association called the Child Abuse Committee. So this is in 1971, mm-hmm. really at the dawn of the law on child protection. Mm-hmm. Right? And 
I mean, there was this little bit of a dialogue happening in the community about how lawyers can make a difference in kids' lives. Yeah. And so Lois Forer said to Meg, well, one, you know, I wasn't there, but you can imagine paraphrasing <laughs> the conversation. One way you can make a difference is to, is to represent this kid. Mm-hmm. Meg went back to her Philadelphia law firm, uh, a, 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 a big old firm named Pepper Hamilton and Sheets, still around today, mm-hmm. a great firm, and recruited three young lawyers to try to represent the kid. They worked all night. They, they tried to force their way into the case. They basically petitioned this trial court to uh, be allowed to represent the child, and, and, and the judge said, no, the county agency is representing him fine enough. They spent, uh, pulled an all-nighter mm-hmm. and uh, wrote a King's Bench petition to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. The King's Bench petition is, is actually a vestige from the days of uh, common law England in which you could petition direct, one could petition directly to the sovereign. Can you imagine? Hmm. The King's Bench writ still exists today as a device in, in Pennsylvania law. Anyway, cool. they go to the Supreme Court and they win. And in 1972, established the right to counsel for kids in child protection proceedings in Philadelphia. So that the state Supreme Court or was that the... The the... Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So uh, then they started taking cases informally through this committee and eventually incorporated in 1977. And we've been doing it ever since. Uh, We represent about 1,100 children a year. We have about 350 active volunteer lawyers. They step up from all over the Philadelphia legal community Mm -hmm. to do pro bono work for abuse kids. It's a really neat expression of service and of commitment to kids and to families. And we're very proud of it. Thank you all for doing what you do. Yeah, it's good work. (laughs) It's it's obviously a a kind of noble work. um, And we try to do it well. One of the hallmarks of our work is, is, is to be and to bring a high quality presence to every child. So we know all of our kids, we go to visit them where they live, we hear from them what they want and what they need, and we fight the fight to get them uh, what they need and what they deserve. That's awesome, yeah. especially- It's a good work. I know, when I, whenever I think about issues like these, whenever we discuss them on um, some of our other shows, that's always the most daunting part. Um, it's just the fact that these are um, children or teens and having to navigate a legal system for any reason from that position. I mean, geez, it was, it, it would be something that I know if, if I were in that situation, my, my parents would handle that for me. But That's right. many of these people either don't have parents or their parents are unavailable for, for a, a number of reasons. Or, or the parent is part of the problem. Yeah. Right. So you have, as we said at the beginning, there's kids who are involved in the court system because they did something or at least allegedly did something. Mm -hmm. There are kids involved in the court system because something was done to them. Mm -hmm. They are, in a sense, victim. More broadly stated, you know, every kid is involved with the court system, has needs, is, in a sense, victimized. The really important part is that we as, uh, you know, as, as the adults in the picture, government, agents of government, those of us who are responsible to hold government accountable, that altogether we behave better in that kid's life than that which brought them there. We ought to be part of the solution. We ought to be part of the, in a sense, making a difference in that kid's life. So that's, you know, that's, where, that's where this reentry is just a, uh, is a small part of this larger picture 
of what we're about in kids' lives and what we all ought to be about in kids' lives. That, you know, th- this kid got placed in this out of, and we go back to the program, this kid got placed in this out of community school by somebody else, maybe by virtue of his behaviors, maybe by virtue of somebody else's behaviors. But now we're responsible to get him back on track at home with all of the services and supports that he needs Mm -hmm. to catch up and to get ahead so that he can someday get to Temple University, Mm -hmm. right, and be on the radio or otherwise to have, um, you know, a fruitful, positive, crime-free adult life. To be a force uh, force for growth. Yeah. Something constructive. You know, we we all want to be optimistic for our kids, and Mm -hmm. they have such tremendous futures. Uh, We're holding them back when we don't uh, take care of these these barriers, when we don't remove these barriers. They didn't put up any of them. Yeah, they, they didn't put up a single one. I mean, they're, by their behavior, and they may have brought themselves into that situation, and we can talk about whether they're responsible for that or not. But mm-hmm. in point of fact, most of the stuff that they're going through, the processes, the institutions, um, and, and the bureaucracies uh, are, 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 are processes that have been prevailed upon them. Mm-hmm. Somebody else is owning those those mechanisms. Whether whether or not they're responsible for for their position, it's something where if if our systems, if our bureauc- if our bureaucracy has a destructive effect, if it is again, like if, if people frequently find themselves in positions where, through no fault of their own, reentry into a system is made difficult or even impossible, like that's. Kind of, kind of what you were saying before, we're the adults in the room. Yeah. That that becomes on us. I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah and, and we ought to feel responsible. Yes. In our office, we feel responsible for the kids on our watch. We call on institutions and on government leaders and on the community at large to feel responsible. We see this in the child protection arena. Uh, you hear, sadly, every now and then, uh, you know, a child on your block was abused, was neglected, was harmed severely or worse. And, and then the question goes, well, how come nobody saw this happening? It's because people did, did not stand up. Mm-hmm. They, did not, they did not call uh, for help for that kid. They did not consider that kid and his or her well-being their responsibility. Mm-hmm. This project is another version, an expression of that sense of community responsibility. Mm-hmm. We were going to talk a little bit about what young people can do, yep. huh? In our we, last couple of minutes, say we uh, no, we got time. So that's yeah. On that topic, what can well not just young people, but really eh, anybody in various capacities? What can people do to either raise awareness, get involved if they have the qualifications? I think it's really important for us to recognize that we live in community, that we live mm-hmm. uh, in um, and with others who we're responsible for and we're responsible to. Um, you know, it, it, it's simply not enough to go home to our dorm or to our apartment or to our house or to our neighborhood and close the door and put the world outside. Mm-hmm. It's simply not enough. If we all do that, well, we're all going to be worse for it. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, there's going to be some kids who are going to be in places where bad things are happening to them and nobody is stepping up. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that we can do. We can be responsible as community members for the others uh, wh- whom we're living with, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, I feel like there's a, a tremendous 
kind of work opportunity for uh, for 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 young people in particular who are. Uh, trying to find their own direction in life. Mm -hmm. They're in college, they're in graduate school, they're in high school on their way to these programs. And, and they're trying to figure out, what, do, what, what, what am I going to do with my life? Now, I think it's important to recognize that young people want to go where they can make a difference and where they can find meaning. And, and I know for myself, uh, having worked in human services uh, for a long time, um, that, that we find meaning and we are making a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in in our field, so there are differences needed. Yeah, there's opportunities to be, uh, of course, lawyers, social workers, childcare workers, case managers, mm -hmm. um, and, and so many other uh, work opportunities. Um, teaching is a tremendous, tremendously important profession. And oh, by the way, you get summers off. <laughs> I wonder how I missed that gig. It's a <laughs> bonus. Exactly. Oh. That's so. I think um, what what I, I wanted to say as well as uh, uh, about this this program of of the school to prison pipeline and 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 reentry um, relates to the Institute on Disabilities here, uh, who has helped us to understand uh, so much about yeah, in a sense the the extra burdens that persons with disabilities carry as they try to navigate these systems and these barriers that mm -hmm. we're talking about. Uh, our project is intended to remedy um, the conditions that affect the entire community, those with disabilities and those uh, able-bodied persons uh, who, are living, who are living in the community. Um, we know that uh, persons with disabilities really have, they, they have larger barriers Mm -hmm. uh, in their lives. That may be because, uh, you know, the school programs that we've been talking about haven't fully grown or developed the accommodations that that person needs. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be because the more advocacy needs to happen in order to uh, get the program in place. Broadly speaking, a lot of cases, in, in a lot of situations, the people who are developing these bureaucracies, these institutions, aren't people who live with disabilities. Yeah, and, so some are. I mean, you know, look, it's a very enlightened community of folks who are running these programs. There are very few. Uh, look, in my long career, mm -hmm. I haven't met too many people who are in the work for the wrong reason. Oh. They're all trying hard. Well, at least trying. Some well, of them are, may not be trying so hard. I wouldn't even say that people right? aren't trying hard, but it's definitely historically, it. I don't want to say it's 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 been an, an afterthought, but when it's not something that a lot of people who are kind of at present at the genesis of a lot of these systems, if it's not right at the at the center of all the other things they've got to set up to get a massive public school system going with all the paperwork and stuff like that that has to happen, I can understand how there can be a lot of blind spots. Yeah, so the, the processes ought to be kind of hardwired mm -hmm. uh, into the school program, um, into the uh, institution, into the school district. Uh, and, and they're not, mm -hmm. you know, in a way they used to be, but uh, the world has grown more complex just as, as, uh, you know, as funding has migrated away from these, these programs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's a, it's a tough game. It's obviously why we're in it. We, there are too many kids, uh, who, who are losing, uh, days and years of their education and, and the growth that comes with it. Uh, and, 
as we've said all along, some of those kids, while losing their education, are also getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so they find themselves in an entirely different path that is very challenging and, in fact, dangerous to them. Indeed. Well, on that, po- on that point, we are out of time. But thank you for fighting the good fight because someone's got to do it. And very clearly, based on what we've discussed, it is, it is help and work that is sorely needed, not just here in Philly, but in the whole nation. So thank you. Thanks to the, child, the uh, <laughs> child advocates for the work that you all do. But that is all the time that we have for today. So thank you all for listening. This has been Rational Radio on WHIP, Philly's number one college radio station. And if you missed a part of this show, you can always catch it on our website, whipradiotu.com, where this should be up within the next 24 hours. Thank you all for listening. I'm going to leave you all, at least those of you listening live, with a little bit of Daft Punk. Happy Wednesday, y'all.